I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On today's episode, I've got a voice matched only by the Bee Gees, the Delphonics and the Stylistics. Chatting tracks. Let's talk music. Hello and welcome to Chatting Tracks with me, Rob the Face Radio Burgess. Welcome to today's episode. Now before I carry on, I've got to say a massive thanks to everybody that subscribed to the channel and all the people that have spoken to me about music on and offline and the people that have been watching all the live streams and all that sort of stuff. So we wanted to create a music community around this podcast and YouTube channel and that's exactly what's happening. So thank you to everybody that's doing it. It really means a lot, it really does. And if you've not done it yet and you want to get involved, hit the subscribe button there and you'll get involved in all this sort of stuff that we're doing. We're always doing live streams, talking about music and putting on new episodes of interviews. So it's just a wonderful place to be if you love music. So thanks for joining me if you already have. And if you haven't done it yet, what are you waiting for? Come on, hit the cheeky like and subscribe button. Anyway, on today's episode, I've got Paul Da Vinci, the voice behind Sugar Baby Love and Your Baby Ain't Your Baby Anymore. Now, this is an interesting episode for me because it turns out that Paul grew up in the town that I lived in, um, obviously about 20 years before I was there, but he was he lived in the same area as me, so I knew exactly what the places that he was talking about. He also played the same circuit with my stepdad. My stepdad was a musician who played with lots of bands back in the day, and he played on the circuit with comedians and stuff like that. But it was really interesting to know that Paul was talking about places not only did I know, and he talks about my stepdad. Um, I don't know Paul at all. I've never met Paul, but we, the first time I spoke to him was online during the interview and he's a lovely guy and it was interesting that when he mentioned a club or a hall I could instantly know where it is that doesn't happen often on a show like this so it was lovely to be able to do that anyway Paul's a lovely guy and he's agreed to let me play his new song at the end of the show so stick around at the end of this episode there's a brand new track that Paul's releasing on his new album and you get to hear it for the first time here it's fantastic and like I said at the start it's a bit delphonic-y it's a bit stylistic-y and it's just got a wonderful soul tone to it so check it out you're gonna love it and I'll see you on the next one Ta-da. Was it like a musical house growing up? Were your parents into music? Was there music in the in the air? Um, yeah, but my 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 parents um, d- danced a bit. They did a bit of ballroom dancing, but they um they they my mum was was mad about music. You know, my dad just used to grouch about. They didn't think they were very good, any of them. You know, but my mum was an absolute absolute fanatic fan of Tony Bennett and. Um, and people like that, you know. Yeah, great stuff. So it was mainly sort of um, that sort of big band swing jazz sort of stuff that was in your house. Well, no, more more the Tony Bennett sort of cruiser uh, crooner thing, and um, and she liked Shirley Bassey, and um, but she was that's where I've got my sort of enthusiasm from for music. I think from from her, you know. I heard I heard my dad sing once. He was a strange man, but I heard him sing once, and he could really sing, but. He was quite an erotic man. I didn't get on with him at all, you know, my parents. But um, but he was um, he was an unusual character. Uh, but I heard him sing once, and he was really good. And I said, "Was that you singing?" And he sort of sort of very embarrassed went, uh, 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 "Yes, you know." But he was really good. I couldn't believe it, you know. So, w- when did you sort of first discover your voice and singing? When when did you, when did that really sort of click for you? I was in choirs from the age of about ten, I reckon. That's when it when it sort of started, and. Um, the, the, the music master in school, a guy named Mr. Harwood, who used to sing with this really strange affectation. He would sort of, he'd obviously been told to sing a certain way. And, and I always remember him singing it going, Morning, Anyway, I went down there the first night to the choir and they chucked me in a puddle. 
So I went home crying and, and I wasn't going to go back. And he told me that I'd get the slip if I didn't go back to the to the choir. So I went back, you know. But that's how it started, you know, in, in church choirs. I, I was singing all the time around the house. You should drive my dad crazy. You know, all the time I'd be singing. That's amazing to think your dad had this voice and didn't use it, and then it was. So- yeah, he he was quite. He was. It was a very. I don't know what happened with him, but um, I didn't like him. You know, he wasn't. He wasn't pleasant to me. You know, but um, but he um, he went he went off to war when he was really young. Very strange with him because you couldn't tell with him what was the truth and what was sort of fabricated. But he went off to to Burma. We've seen photographs of that, and he came back with malaria. And I don't know whether that all affected. The, the, his neurosis or whatever you know so what sort of album or single is it that really sort of turned your head into music that made you go I've got to go and buy that what is it the first one I bought was Rubber Soul by the Beatles and I used to I used to phone up when the, when a new Beatles record was coming up you know it wasn't like nowadays with the internet and stuff I, I'd phone up the shops and I'd always get the first one so I started with Rubber Soul and then with Revolver and then uh, Pepper and like all the all the Beatles Beatles album, so that's what I was really, uh, really sort of fanatical about. Really, I loved the Who. I liked so I liked the Beatles, but I loved uh, Zeppelin and the Who and people like that. You know. Yes, yeah, I mean, I think Rubber Soul is definitely the the Beatles turning point album. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it was wonderful, wonderful. And when you when I mean, they've got this new technology now, where the, where, where you know, in those days they'd got four tracks. Like Rubber Soul was recorded on four tracks, which is crazy. And you do this bouncing technique, you know, where you, you start off with um, perhaps the uh, the drums and 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 bass, and then you then they bounce that with with a guitar. And, and and a harmony and then bounce that again and every time you bounced it it got thinner you know so so that they but they've now got technology where they can unbounce it and then take it back to literally the kick drum and individual components it's incredible technology you know do you think that will help music or will it hinder it because obviously we the Beatles records of old you you hear them a certain way and that's why you love them do you think if they get too in depth it can ruin it Absolutely, I think it ruins them. I think Charles, we met Charles Martin. He was going to record uh, our daughter, wow. um, and I went up to to uh, the studio in Hampstead and Air London Studios, and he he seemed very doolally to me. You know, it was bizarre. I asked him. I said to him, he was they were going to partner her with this girl who was a, a pianist, and Claire had got all these great ideas, and she's a big opera singer. And they said to her, "Can you sing with a little folky voice?" So I said, well, look, excuse me, but what, what is the point in bringing this big opera singer up here and then asking her, I said, can I hear something you're doing? And he went, oh, no, the speaker's not working in the room. This is in the bloody studio, you know. Ridiculous. But, uh, but yeah, I do think, I think that, uh, I think it, it, it bugs them up because they weren't, that wasn't the spirit of the thing. It's like taking out the, the spirit of it and, and reanalyzing how the record was envisaged. So it makes it clearer, but it's like the new Stones record. I mean, have you heard that angry yeah. record that they've, that they've got? Um, it's all really clean and, and it's almost a cabaret version of the Stones. The whole thing was that you've got spillage in those recordings and that's what made the, the spirit of them because it was more like the group were alive, you know. It's a bit like when they, they sort of, if you analyse a joke, like a man walks into a bar, why did he walk into the bar? <laughs> Instantly it's killed the, 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 the original idea. Yeah, absolutely. I know, it did. It's crazy. I mean, I don't like them clean. And, and uh, uh, to be honest, when they started stereo, uh, putting them in stereo, you know, it, it, they, they weren't very good at it at the time. And, and it sort of 
for me, they were much better in their original mono thing, you know, but um, I don't know. I mean, AI is obviously a new thing, but that's a whole new subject. <laughs> oh, oh I, I love that. I mean, I'm, in the recordings that I'm doing, there's, there's, a, there's a company called Sonible that I'm nothing to do with, you know, but they've got all these, where, where you could sit and work out, uh, you, you cut your frequencies so they cut through, it analyzes that stuff for you. It just sweeps through and goes, whomp, and analyzes your vocal so that it's all EQ'd beautifully, all the bit, all this stuff that, and, and also if you've not got a tuned room, it helps the fact that it, it's analyzing it without without the room noise, So, which is really clever, you know. So I love it. I mean, like the, the new record that I just made, I, I just did that all indoors, just on the computer and a, a, a little Neumann microphone and stuff, but a lot of, a lot of, um, years of working at it to try and work out how to do it. I'm still trying to work out how to do it, <laughs> you know, really, really, really properly. But, but they're getting there now. They're sounding like, um, they're sounding like the radio, you know, and I had it mastered by somebody and he said, the, the recording's fine, you know. When you started singing sort of back in the day, were you singing solo or were you in bands? Because were, were you in a band called 1984 originally? Is that right? Yeah, I was, yeah. Well, look, the first band that I was in, the very first band that I was in was called The Sonics. And we only played one gig ever. <laughs> so that was that band. Um, the one gig that we played, uh, my cousin went down to the Civic Hall in, in Grays, in, in, in uh, oh, where's that? In uh, uh, Blackshots, in Blackshots, yeah. And, um, and to see Jimi Hendrix. Wow. So after the gig, he went backstage and Hendrix was sitting on his own with his guitar. Uh, he couldn't even play the guitar, my cousin, but he sat there and played Hendrix's guitar in front of him, <laughs> sat and spoke to him. I was so jealous on this one studying gig. And then the next group was called The Theory and they turned into 1984. How did you um, join that band? Were you just, did you audition or was it sort of? Did yeah, you... I, I, it was funnily enough, it was somebody that knew me in the choir and he had suggested this guy that they, their singer was going to leave and that I, that I go down there and do it. So it was a really wet night. It was a, what do they call it? The Women's Institute Hall. <laughs> and I went down there in a, in a, in a, in a Mac looking really, really untrendy and all <laughs> soaking wet from the, from the rain. And their faces dropped when I walked in. That was like, oh my God, what is this? You know? And uh, so they said, uh, what do you want to sing? So I sang My Girl and I didn't realize at the time that I was singing falsetto in the, in the middle of it, you know, where it goes, I guess you say all that bit, you know? Yeah. And they just, they just, I saw their mouths go open. And and um and I got the job. What sort of band was it? Was it a rock band? Was it a folk band? What sort of thing? No, we were just doing we were just doing all the all the best pop songs at the time. We were doing we were doing things like uh, uh, "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds," and I was turning around on this on this uh, beer called tape recorder, and sort of it was my early days of production. I was like turning around when it goes uh, "Cellophane flowers of yellow and green," and I was doing all the the things. I went "Sat sat sat," you know. And uh, we were doing Stones things and The Who and um, The Turtles and um, uh, You've Lost That Loving Feeling and, uh, and, and a couple of things like um, On Broadway and stuff like that. I mean, and, and things like Hold On, I'm Coming. And I, I heard, I learned them from the group. So they were teaching them to me wrong. You know, I was, I was singing these things and they were, they were teaching me the wrong, the wrong notes. And of course, then you'd not, you had to go and buy the album if you wanted to hear it, you know, <laughs> which would have been expensive to buy each album of each song. So, you know, that's, uh, yeah, so that, but they were good. They were a pretty good group, you know, like Scythe Group used to come and see us and we used to go and see Simon. We should explain to people listening, that's my stepdad. 
there was a session player on the same circuit. <laughs> yes. I think Simon, I remember, it would kill me for saying this, but I think Simon used to get very nervous on stage. So the band used to sort of give him drinks <laughs> and then encourage him to jump around the stage and stuff. And he was great. But I, I didn't know that, I didn't know he was nervous on there. I thought he was just, you know, this great front man, you know. <laughs> I did hear that story. And um, if people can imagine a six foot, two man jumping up and down that's why <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what it would look like so after 1984 you, you left those you, you were you doing session singing is that right and, and just sort of doing adverts and jingles and bits and bobs yeah um after 1984 I, oh god i'm trying to remember now what what happened i mean we we got we got we started getting record deals and and then i'm not sure what happened with the group at the end of it to be honest um I know, I know it's split. I don't know whether people left or whatever. Or whether I, I can't, really can't remember what what happened. But uh, yeah, I started doing. Well, I, I went into uh, shortly after that. I went into the the, the Ken Mack band, um, uh, Ken Mackintosh, and I was in in Hammersmith Palais there playing to loads of people, you know. And um, I always remember I, I hadn't got the nerve to sing falsetto on stage, and they were they were doing all these stylistic songs, and the girl in the group was singing them. And and I knew that I could sing them like like, like the stylistic sounded, but there was no way I was going to stand up in front of loads of blokes and sing in this in this high voice, which is quite <laughs> ironic, you know. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well then obviously it became a thing that no, you know, people like it, but you know, but you know, weird at the time. When, when you were doing sort of sort of jingles, was it for things like like Nescafe? Was it just general TV adverts and radio adverts? Yeah, I did. I did. I, I, basically, what happened was I, I I got um I got signed to. I had a lot of legal problems after the records because of what had, what had gone on, and I got stuck with. I I, I signed to two songwriters uh, a production deal, and then they wouldn't let me out of the deal. And people were offering big, like uh, Nigel Grange, uh, who was ELO's label, wanted to sign me. But he said to me years later, they were asking for a lot of money. So they basically kept me out of contract for about four years, you know. And then I signed to Psalm. The two guys that were producing me at Psalm, which was Gary Lyons and John Sinclair, they produced Foreigner. Then their heads got too big for them. They split up. So I was left just with John. And then Gary's manager phoned me from the States and said, we'll get you out of your contract. So I then got into another foot. So I had eight years after two number one records of not being able to make a record. Wow. You know, it's crazy. It's a crazy business. And often that's what happens when people have only one hit or a couple of hits. It's because you get into this legal, you know, it's a, it's an obstacle course really. Through Jeff Wayne, I started, I met Jeff Wayne and got on really well with him and he wanted to sign me. Um, but uh, then Psalms uh, split with him. They'd got a thing called Psalm Wayne. They split um, and uh, anyway, I started doing commercials for him, but I did British Airways. I did, uh, uh, do you remember Smith's Crisps? Do I do, yeah. The, the, from, the, the little adverts with the potatoes. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, well, I, I, I was the third potato from the left. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do that in my act. I do that in the, in the show, you know, and it always gets a, but I did that and I did. Um, a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I did, uh, oh, Doritos. If you like Doritos, that one, you know. Yeah. Um, lo- loads and loads of them. Uh, Smith's Chris, uh, British Airways, um, yeah, um, all those BT. Do you remember the BT telecom things where they they got a they held up a sign and says "Tell Laura I love her" and they go "No, you tell her." Yeah, I remember that was those. me yeah. doing. That was me doing all those. Um, you know, that was bright bright eyes and stuff like that. And also loads of sessions uh, back in vocals for Barry Blue, um, Gary Moore, the, the guitarist. Ringo, I did an album with Ringo Starr called Scouse the Mouse. Yeah, we, we, I'd never met him, you know, but we we just. On the tape, we just heard him saying, I'm not going to effing sing that rubbish or something. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, we heard Ringo from afar, you know. <laughs> Was it around this time that Sugar Baby Love appeared? Like someone, did you do the demo first? Is that right? Well, after Barry Blues, after Barry Blues things, me and Adrian Baker sang all the high vocals on, if you, if you look at, listen to the record, Do You Want to Dance? That's me and Adrian at the end of it. Then I got a call from Jerry, uh, Shuri, who's since passed away, but which really sad. He was a lovely guy, saying there's these two songwriters. They've had a bit of a hit in the states, and they want to record all this doo-wop stuff. Uh, will you do the sessions? So I did them as demonstration sessions. That's what they were meant to be, and um, and then I signed a deal. After the first session, they asked me if I if I wanted to do a deal, and I said I've just signed. I've just signed a deal uh, with with Penny Farthing. So anyway, so I did then did the next session, which was Sugar Baby Love. They'd written it an octave lower, you know the Nar Doobie Nar Nar thing. Yeah. They'd written it eight notes lower, and during the session at one thirty in the morning, I said it's not working. It's got to be an octave higher. So I went ah, and I sang those notes, you know, and within about ten minutes, Lansdowne Studios a control room was full of people like having a party, and I'm down the bottom, absolutely knackered at one thirty in the morning, not realising what had gone on. So they, they then wanted me to front it. And I said, well, look, I've signed, I've signed uh, a deal with, with Penny Farthing. So I said, take my voice off the record and you've got my blessing. And the next thing I knew, somebody phoned me up and said, what's top of the pops tonight? You're on. I think I know who it was, uh, but I won't say, you know. And, um, and, uh, and they were miming to my voice. So we settled out of court, you know. But it's been a drag because obviously a lot of people still don't believe it. And, and I have to explain it so many times. So many radio interviews I've had to tell this story you know which is fair enough but people uh, eventually they've, they've started now announcing when they play it on radio one or anything like that they normally say that's paul da vinci singing but they weren't even on it they weren't even at the studio apart from the drummer they were nothing to do with it not one of them were anything to do with it you know and i knew them so i thought it's disgusting because i couldn't have done that for any amount of money in the world and the guy that mined to me you know he's, he's just lived off it for Years. Apparently he had an operation recently, and they went when he went down for the op. They were playing Sugar Baby Love with me singing it, and he's smiling and taking the credit for it. Oh, unbelievable! You know, like you said, the music industry. Um, oh yeah, it's a tougher. Yeah. What I'm really interested in though is the B side. Uh, you could have told me because you co-wrote that one, didn't you? Is that right? No. What you could have told me? No, I didn't co-wrote that. I sang. I sang both sides of the record. No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I wrote. I wrote your baby and your baby anymore, which was a hit for me. Um, and um, 
and I wrote If You Get Hurt, which was, which was a bit of a hit. Then I, in the 80s, I had a hit with Light Fit, Back to the 60s, Part 2, and I sang virtually all the voices on the album and on the single. Like you could have told me, it's a really soul-sounding record. I was really interested in that rather than the yeah, outside. it was all really beatly. I mean, I was thinking McCartney without, you could have told you know, and um, we actually met him. But we, we met him, I was being managed by Mike Leander, who was managing Glitter, would you believe, you know. But um, we met him, at, we were queuing at the Ritz, and my wife's name's Linda, and we were queuing to go to the reception. It was all really poncy and everything, you know. And in the crowd, this buzz went down the back, but Paul and Linda McCartney were queuing. So they announced everybody, and they went, um, Paul and Linda, Da Vinci, these people all laughed, you know. <laughs> and then when we got in there, there was a girl across about sort of 30, 40 feet away. She waved across and went, oh, Paul, you know. And McCartney went, hey, you know what? And and she said, I'm sorry I meant Paul Da Vinci. At which point, Paul and Linda turned tail and headed towards us. And, he, and they said, oh, we heard your interview on the radio yesterday. Wasn't it terrible what that group did? And I just couldn't talk. You know, I really, being that close to Paul McCartney, I just couldn't, I couldn't say a word. Ridiculous. You know, they, they wandered off because we weren't talking. You know, I was just going, blah, 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 you know. <laughs> Very strange because being the most famous person in the world in front of you, it's a bit daunting, you know. I, I did the same thing. I met him once as well. And um, I just grinned at him for like a minute. I didn't even say a word either. You just can't, can you? You get starstruck straight no, away. No, absolutely. Well, I've never been, I mean, I've never been like it with, I, was, I, I did, I was in Tommy in, in two runs in Hornchurch and one run in the West End. And it's a bit like that with Pete Townsend. I, I found it, uh, a, you know, um, a, a bit difficult with him to have him around because he was an absolute hero and, and not the easiest of people to get on with, you know. Um but uh, that was a strange one as well, sitting in a in a dressing room drinking with my mate Pete, you know, <laughs> <laughs> getting drunk with him. That was that was a strange strange experience, you know. So, can we talk about um, your baby, your baby anymore? How that came about, that track? Yeah, what happened was um, Eddie Sego, who was one of these uh, writers that I was signed to, had got this title, "Your Baby Ain't Your Baby Anymore." So I was sitting in a we've got a flat at the time, you know. Um, and uh, well, I got married when I was 18, you know, we've got, we've got our daughter and everything. And um, and uh, I'm sitting there writing and I, and I did, take my hand, don't be so sad and lonely. I understand, darling, although it hurts you, it's over, but it's not like before. Then it goes to E minor, because your baby ain't your... And, and at that point, I went, because your baby ain't your baby anymore. And my wife went, oh, God, have you, have you got to do it like that? Because you're going to have to now, you know, it's going to, you know, you're going to get half the thing. So I said, well, it just works. So I went over with Eddie because I knew he was he was going to finance it. So he wrote he wrote a few words to it, basically. Um, but basically, it was all done. You know, he wrote a few lyrics with me, but and he did get the title, which was very important. But um, yeah, but but then he but I produced it, and then he put his name first on the production credits and on the writing credits, and I'm still waiting for money from them years later you know which is another story when you get to the part where you're talking in the song was that designed did you write that into the song or was it just an accident that happened and well, you I, I did it purposely because i'll tell you what it was i was writing rock the, the record before it which featured john richardson from the rubettes on drums was called are you ready and it was a heavy rock record that went you know like this so and that's what I was into. But everyone was saying, "Oh, you couldn't have you couldn't have sung on that record. Otherwise, you'd have been on top of the pops." You know, which was really getting my goat. So I thought I'm going to showcase the falsetto as much as I can. So I wrote a big fanfare at the beginning of that bar, bar da 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 da, and then 
the high notes, and then the middle bit, just like they did with Sugar Baby Love, where it goes, people, take my advice. I, I, I spoofed that, really. And at the very end of it, I thought, I'll really make it obvious. So I went, your baby and your baby any, and then sang the really high note without any backing whatsoever. So it was really designed to, to prove you know what I'd done when we did Top of the Pops they got me on the same show as, as the Roubettes being really naughty the BBC you know and their second record flop basically it was about number 14 after a number one record you know but I sang it live I sang it and, and John Richardson walked in while I was singing it but I insisted on singing it live I had to do it twice because the first time it, it sent all the metres into the red <laughs> and they weren't expecting that you know and so then then I recorded it again but then they dubbed it over the original record, which didn't, and faded it, which made it like not done it live, which was a ridiculous thing to do, you know. But anyway, that's why I did it. Anyway, just really, and it threw me, threw me in terms of the sort of writing that I was doing, you know, um, it, it, it threw my career into the wrong direction, really. Yeah, because you, did you write for Liquid Gold after that? Is that right? Yeah, I wrote, I co-wrote um, Any Way You Do It with, uh, with Adrian Baker, who, who then went on to be, he's the guy that sang with me on Barry Blues Records, Fantastic talent. He lives in America now, but um, he went on to 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 join the Beach Boys and and stuff after. You know, many years later, you sort of went into sort of classical style. Is that right? You did Visions of Aaron and Hope. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, you've done your you've done your research there. Yeah, but uh, our our our, our um, son-in-law Richard Jenkinson is a sort of international cellist, and he heard me sitting at the computer writing some of this stuff, and he said, "What what's that?" You know. So I said, um, oh, "I'm just." doing some classical stuff, you know. So I'm not formally trained, but obviously it's what people like Mozart would have been doing nowadays. They'd be doing it on a computer, you know. Um, so I, I, and you're still having to create the harmony and, and write everything, you know. So he said, if you finish that, I'll get it played. And I had some played at the Wigmore Hall, some played at the Purcell Rooms, some played on the South Bank. When we did the Purcell Rooms, there's a recording. It followed, I don't know whether you're aware of the Barbier Piece. Do you know the piece on Apocalypse Now, that really sad piece? Where that, um, you know, so it was following that, and I thought, oh, my God, it's going to die on its ass because that's a phenomenal piece of music. At the end of the Hope Concerto, they, they stamped on the floor for about three minutes after the thing. It was really amazing, you know. Um, so that was at the time of the Irish, the English, uh, Anglo-Irish thing being dodgy, and it was meant to be like some of it was sort of quintessential English music, you know, like Terry Thomas sort of, blah, 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 blah. and the others were, was like Irish lilting melodies and they moved together and in the last movement they, they coexisted, you know. Because it's a completely different style. It must be mind-blowing to get such recognition in such a different style. It was it was fabulous. I mean, it was weird. I've never been more nervous in my life. And at the, at the South Bank, I put my little tape recorder on the edge of the stage to record it. And a bloke came up and told me they would kick me out if I didn't take it off the stage. <laughs> and then, and then, and the people were sort of guffawing, going, "Who's this philistine?" And then when they said composer, and I had to stand up, they were all so like, <laughs> you know, "Who's this yobbo that's composed this stuff?" You know, <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, it's wonderful to know you're back out on the road. If people want to know about where to find you, where's the best place to look? If you look on PaulDaVinci.net. There's lots of live footage of, of, of the band. I've been doing, I've been doing, we're basically working a lot for Warner Leisure Hotels, which are all like castles and, and manor houses and stately homes. They're fabulous venues. Um, and they're really nice. They're really nice places to go and have a holiday. 
you know, great food and great, great uh, swimming pools. And it's really lovely, you know. So if they look up Warner Leisure and PaulDaVinci.net, um, you can basically, you know, find out where, where I'm going to be. Fantastic. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks for your time. The kind of love that lasts forever. The kind of love that fills me up. The kind of love that's a miracle. That kind of love could save the world. The kind of love that makes me sing. The kind of loving that you bring. I only need that kind of love. Sometimes love is tough But your love I can't get enough Love me like a sinner Do anything you want I just need the kind of loving you've got That's a miracle That kind of love Could save the world The kind of love That makes me sing The kind of loving That you bring I only need That kind of love I don't have a castle I don't wear a crown But I'm a king When you're around You got me feeling like a winner Standing out from the crowd I can't believe this love I've found Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.